All right, let's talk about vision. Um, this is something that I love to teach on, and it is something that I feel like can be scaled. So after talking about this, my hope is that you guys are going to find that you can actually scale what I'm teaching about to fit a, um, a ministry that might be a small group. It may be a ministry that's, you know, that's working out of a volleyball outreach type of thing to, um, to an entire like, ministry initiative that, that like, maybe you're going after or a, a focus for a year to uh, an entire church, to an entire diocese. You can scale this vision understanding to different ways and different things. As a matter of fact, it can scale down to your life. In other words, what is just vision for your life? And Gregory House folks will be workshopping this. So, um, and you guys can choose to apply it however you want. But one thing that might be helpful would be that what I'm teaching on, I'm going to want you to workshop it. So what I'm going to want to do eventually is, okay, um, what is like the ministry area I have right now? And what, how would I articulate the vision for my ministry area? Or what I'll say to folks is most of us have some kind of ministry area that's going on. But if you don't even have a ministry that's going on, what's, how am I thinking about my life vision right now? So this scales down to one person, can scale to thousands. Um, it's just a biblical teaching on how do we learn how to vision. And I'm very interested in vision, uh, not because in, in, in any way that the vision or even a mission statement is kind of locked into something that goes into a frame on a wall, right? Or it's kind of like, you know, McDonald's has a vision statement. Great, great for McDonald's. I mean, all they care about is money. They don't care about food. You know that, right? You don't care about food. They don't really care much about people. They, they just care a lot about money. And that's true of almost every multi-national you know, corporation. They, I mean, let's just be honest. They're in it for the money. Um, right, I mean, it's, you know, it's making profit. They're doing whatever. They're cre- creating jobs. Okay, fine. Um, we're not thinking about vision in a frame on a wall that says, hi, as a business, we want to do this. Or, not to decry that. It's just that that's not what we're about. We're talking about vision in terms of seeing God. So we talk about vision. Vision at first was seeing God. We want to see the face of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the perfect icon, Apostle Paul says, of the Father, right? So we care a ton about vision, and actually vision belongs to us. We're glad to share it with corporate America. We're glad to share it with not-for-profits. We're glad to share. But when we share, we should be very clear, what is it to begin with? And what does it come from? So vision is intrinsically a biblical reality. It's intrinsically a reality of those who believe in Jesus. Because we get to see Jesus. Which is one reason, for example, and for those of you that kind of get to know our crazy, wild Anglican world, one reason why we think symbols so important is that we believe that Jesus was made to be seen. So I wear a cross. I can see the cross. We even have an image of Jesus um, that has a beautiful history to it. I won't tell the story right now. We even have an image of Jesus in the middle of our church. So we can, now that isn't himself Jesus, and we don't revere or worship that piece right there. But we actually go, we can see him because he's here. He's right here. He's present among us. Um, so as we talk about vision, what I really want to talk about is seeing the Lord. And then, because he's so personal in our lives, right, and incarnational, we can see the Lord in our lives. We can see him in our lives. And we can see where he's guiding us and directing us and leading us. And indeed, what leaders do, and we're all training to be leaders in different ways, leading our own ministry, leading our own lives, leading different things. As leaders, then, our job is to be seeing the Lord first and foremost in our personal discipleship lives. I care about that more than anything else in your lives, that you're seeing the Lord. You're seeing his word. Right? But then we also are called to see in such a way that others follow us. I mean, it's actually very simple, right? Others follow you because you're seeing the Lord and you're going toward the Lord and they're following behind you. That is part of leadership. Is you go in front and people follow you. That's the whole idea. 
well, where are they following you to? What does everything to do with your vision? What are you seeing? And it's both cosmic, universal, we see Jesus, but it's also extremely personal. What, do you, what is Jesus showing you right now? What is Jesus showing your team right now? And where are you going right now? It has a profoundly incarnational application. So where is resurrection being called to go right now is a vision question for resurrection. Where is the diocese being called to go right now? Well, what got clear to me over the last six months is not just evangelism, but multi-ethnic family. That's a vision. That's where we're going. And I'm asking people to follow me as I follow Jesus, right? So we get into these things and we think about these things and, and we understand that vision is ours. That's what I want to say from the very beginning. Vision is ours. It's Jesus' followers. It belongs to us. It's a Bible thing. It's a Bible thing. We just loan it out. Um, and I'm taking it back again, okay? So it is really important that you guys reframe it that way because some of you are gonna, you'll be suspicious of vision if you don't reframe it that way, and you should be. But once you get it reframed, you don't need to be suspicious at all. It's one of your greatest partners. I don't, don't even want to say it is like a tool too, but it's more than a tool. It's more, more than a utilitarian implement. It's one of your greatest partners in ministry. And it will help you the most. So learning how to vision learning how to discern a vision, learning how to articulate a vision, learning how to have us follow a vision, I think is one of the most fundamental realities in Christian leadership. It's one of the most important things. And I feel, as I look back now, um, 28 years of full-time ministry, <laughs> yikes, um, right? I think one of the things that have helped us the most and has helped us bear fruit when we have borne fruit has been actually vision, has been discerning the vision, learning the vision from the Lord, sharing the vision with the people of God and following that vision. It's one of the things I think that's borne the most fruit in, in Catherine's and my calling and our, our seeking to serve. So Genesis 37, so open up your Bibles. Do we need Bibles? We got, we got plenty here at Res. We got lots of Bibles. If anybody needs one. You guys got your Bibles? Oh, look at these. All right, fantastic. All right, uh, Genesis 37. So the story of Joseph um, I mean, this is one of the great stories of world literature. So if you just even pull it out of the scriptures and just said, as a story on its own, um, it's not Western Civ. This is, we're now in Eastern civilization, by the way. So this is, this is one of the great stories of global literature. It is a phenomenal story. And, um, and I absolutely adore it. Uh, we, won't, we won't have time for the whole story today. I once did, I think, like a 10-part sermon series on... Uh, the story of Joseph alone. But I want to capture some about Joseph because I actually think he teaches us a lot about how to do biblical vision. So Genesis 37, 1 to 11. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy um, with the sons of Bilah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, also Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Wait, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams 
and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars are bowing down to me. When he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Okay, let's start with what is vision. And what do we learn from the story of Joseph about what is vision? First, the way that so Joseph gets a vision, he gets a dream, all right? So we're going to call the vision of something in the future, right? So vision has to do with the future, right? We're going into the future together. He has a dream of what the future will be like. He's given symbols in his dream, which, by the way, we often dream in symbols. So it's helpful to have solid believers who know the word of God who can help us interpret our dreams. Um, so he has a dream. The first thing we see is that vision is a gift. It came as a, as a dream, uh, the first part of verse 5. Now, Joseph had a dream. We cannot make ourselves have nocturnal dreams. So one of the most powerful ways, by the way, the Lord speaks to us can be in a dream where you can know that you know that you know, I didn't just hear that. There's no way I'm making that up. Now, how it's interpreted needs wisdom and care, but I just got a gift. A dream's like a gift. It just comes out of nowhere. It can be from God. It can be from our own neurological function. It can be from the devil. But in this case, he gets a dream. It is from God. He doesn't completely handle it in a godly way, by the way. But it's from God, and it's a gift. Vision is a gift. So when you are in a ministry, you're beginning a new ministry, you're in a new season of your life asking God, what's the vision for my life right now? What's the vision for my ministry? What's the vision for my church, for my congregation? You're asking for a gift. You're saying, I need you to speak in your grace, break into my reality, and lead me with this. Which is to say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What am I saying? Well, we're poor. We're utterly poor in spirit. So unless we're given a gift, unless it comes to us from outside of us that's free, we'll never be able to do ministry. We'll never be able to lead. We'll never be able to serve. We'll never be fruitful or effective. Because everything we do in our life as disciples, which is first and foremost fundamental, and then in our lives as leaders is a gift. Vision is a gift to the poor in spirit that are called to serve and lead. Which means that you can never get prideful about any fruit you actually bear. Which if you get to bear any fruit ministry, you'll always struggle with being prideful about it. And you'll tell everyone, oh, it's the Lord. Glory be to God. Soli Deo Gloria. But inside you're like, man, I'm doing something really well. I'm getting fruit. I'm getting numbers. I'm getting, I'm getting an increase. Nothing wrong with fruit, increase in numbers. We want it. But it comes, it comes as a gift. And the vision comes as a gift. So you're asking God, first and foremost, that's where you start. Well, I need a vision. I need a vision. What's the vision for this small group that I'm leading? I need a vision. He wants to give you one. Um, so fun. I, I watched, my daughter was really into a residential life um, in her college time. And it's a place where she felt called to pastor and to lead. And I'll never forget her spending the summer before her junior year when she was going to be um, an RA. Addie was a part of this, actually. Um, where she spent the whole summer just asking the Lord, what's the vision for my floor? It was so fun to watch her at like age 19. And I knew God was going to give her a gift. I knew he's, he, he's going he's to answer this prayer. He's going to give her a gift of what she's to do on her floor. And it was so fun to watch this gift be received and to watch her realize, wow, that just came from the Lord. And then to begin to develop it and then to begin to exercise it. So vision starts as a gift. And we start by asking God, what is it? Okay, vision is a seeing. Verse 7, 
Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. Behold, my sheaf arose. Behold, your sheaves gathered. It's a seeing. Behold is a seeing word. Behold, see, look, here this is. There's a seeing that's happening here. Verse 9, he dreamed another dream. Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold the sun. So vision is only a gift. Vision is then when we can see something. We can see something that's coming. Now, um, with the fivefold ministries, have you guys done anything on that yet? Because we haven't yet in Gregory House. We're going to do something on fivefold ministries in Gregory House. But with the fivefold ministries, you have like an apostolic um, office, right? In, the, in Ephesians chapter 4. And so those that operate in the apostolic, they're going to do, they're going to be often gifted with a lot of seeing because part of the gift of the apostolic is you see what isn't yet. And you step into what isn't yet. With the prophetic, you're actually seeing, but you're seeing where things are off and relative to the word of God. So a, pro- a prophet sees what's off relative to the word of God. An apostolic leader is going to see what isn't yet. Right, so they're going to especially operate in seeing. But every follower of Jesus, regardless of their fivefold ministry background, regardless of their spiritual gifts, we're all seers. We're all seers. And you may know that the old school word for prophet is a seer. As E-E-R. Why? Because they're seeing. So the heart of prophecy and I'll get into this in just a moment, is seeing. So vision is seeing. So you're asking God, what do I need to see for my small group? What do I need to see for my fellowship? What do I need to see for our congregation? What do I need to see for West Loop? What do I need to see for Res Youth? What do I need to see for Emmanuel Anglican? What are you asking me to see in this ministry? And then we realize it's prophetic. It's a gift from God that helps us see that it is a prophetic ministry. Indeed, we see um, that, that this dream is what will come, and it will happen. And we know, because we know the whole story, that indeed Joseph will be raised up to a place of incredible authority, and his family will bow down to him. Um, we see, you know, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. His father knew as an elder, his father knew as a man of experience who walked with God, there's arrogance in this, and, and vision can get mixed up with our own sinful nature, for sure, and it did for Joseph. But the Father says there's something here. There's something, there's something of God here. And when we, when we vision properly, it's really a prophetic ministry. So I would posit biblically the ministry of vision and seeing, yes, in a leadership gift, but I would primarily posit it within a prophetic gift. I would primarily say that the work of vision is primarily the work of prophetic ministry. That vision is primarily a word of knowledge. Okay, so now think about your, your 1 Corinthians 14 uh, Bible studies. It's a word of knowledge. It's a knowing, in part, also First Corinthians, right? In part, what God wants to do. It's prophetic. Okay, so now vision gets really exciting, doesn't it? So now vision isn't just what you know. You know what are our goals? I know goals are important. I'm not huge on goals. Um, I mean, they're important. You should have them. You probably your supervisors want you to have them. That's good. But I get less excited about goals. I find goals are kind of one-dimensional, and I find them a little dry. Um, but what I get really excited about is what prophetically am I being called to do right now? I get excited because I'm interacting with God about it. That's exciting. I'm interacting with God. Like, okay, God, like, what do you want me to do? I also get excited because I'm like, if it's prophetic and it's the Lord, it'll happen. It'll happen. I'll never forget... Father Aaron Damiani, he leads Emmanuel Anglican. Hopefully most of you guys know who Father Aaron is. Uh, Will's under Father Aaron. I'll never forget, I'll never forget where I was. I remember the, the Starbucks parking lot when uh, Damiani called me and he said, Bishop, I just got off a plane flight from blah, 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 blah. And on the plane, the Lord met me. I was like, oh, cool. I got started getting, you know, goosebumps. I was like, well, what happened? 
He was like, I'm getting clear about a vision for a church in Chicago. I tell me about it. He's like, I just see it about being the son of man being lifted up. They'll all be drawn to him. It's the first time he ever started using that phrase. I'm, I'm getting goosebumps right now thinking about it. And I, I listened to him. I was like, that's prophetic. He wants to lift up the son of man in the city of Chicago. The Chicagoans, especially on the north side of the city, would be drawn to Jesus. And when he shared that, when he spoke that, it was more than just him sharing a goal with me. He was prophesying. He was prophesying. God's going to lift up Jesus on the north side of Chicago. So people will be drawn to a word and sacrament ministry, get saved, be discipled, come to know him. Well, seven years later, that is precisely what is happening. Because Aaron heard the Lord correctly. He submitted it to those who were walking with him and in authority over him. We all bore witness to it. We said, this is of the Lord. But keep in mind, this is Aaron getting off an airplane at an airport when there's about five people interested in what we were hoping to do on the north side of Chicago. Not 250 people, five no money. There's no money at that point. There's no money. There's very few people. There's no sense of how this is going to happen. There's no name of the church, right? He prophesied. Word of knowledge. That's what God wanted to do. Hallelujah. And man, I, I heard that vision, and I was filled with faith. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. He's going to plant a church in Chicago. Church planting graveyard. Hallelujah. So, Vision is prophetic. So one reason why I share vision all the time, hey, we're going to be a movement of worship, multiplication, evangelism, and multi-ethnic family. Why do I do that? Well, one of it is I want you guys to remember it. Absolutely. Nate and I were talking about that before we started today. But you know the reason why I share it? I'm prophesying over you. <laughs> See, that's the secret. It's people think you're like, oh, good. He's like keeping the organization's goal in front of us. That's a good you know, thing to do. Well, it is a good thing to do. That's secondary to why I'm doing it. I do it to prophesy. Same thing with our mission. Planning a revival of the word and sacrament infused by the Holy Spirit. I'm just prophesying. I thought God's given us that promise. Many have, it's not just me alone as a megalomaniac, you know, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> right? No, it's that many over, over the years have borne witness to this. This is what the Spirit of God is calling us to do as a movement. Plant a revival of the word and sacrament infused by the Holy Spirit. So when I say that, and it comes from the Lord, I'm actually just releasing a prophetic word of knowledge. I'm see, I can see it. I can feel it. I'm watching it happen. That's what vision is. Isn't that so exciting? It's like a dream. God gave Joseph a dream. He gave him a dream. He gave him a vision. And we know from the story, that's exactly what happened. That's precisely what happened. So how does vision happen? Okay, so God gives Joseph this dream. So of course we're thinking, um, and if, if you're well-developed in American culture, you're thinking, oh man, this is awesome. And if you watch a lot of American Hollywood movies um, where they spend millions and millions of dollars to tell you the truth, right? No, they spend millions and millions of dollars to tell you an illusion. So the way that right, most kind of storylines go, whether it's film or Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever, is okay, like he gets this vision and now he's going to go do it and it's going to be unbelievably successful. And he might even become famous. It's like, wow, Joseph, you're going to be absolutely famous. People are bowing to you. Sheaves bowing to you. Moon and stars bowing to you. You're going to be amazing. So that's what's going to happen next, right? That's how the storyline goes. Right. Okay. So now, now we're getting Bible, right? Now we're getting Jesus. Now we're getting the cross. How does vision happen? Now his brothers went to the pasture of their father's flock near Shechem, verse 12. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And I said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him to the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. 
And a man found him wandering in the fields. The man asked, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, why they're pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went with his brothers and found him in Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before they came near to him, they conspired against him to kill him. This is their own brother. They said to one another, here comes this visionary. Here comes this dreamer. His vision that was from God, arrogantly proposed, sin nature influenced, but ultimately of God, has so disrupted their lives, and actually they believe it. And they didn't believe it. If it didn't have power, if it wasn't prophetic, they'd been like, ah, it's just our little brother showing off. He's a runt. He's an idiot. Right? I mean, right? I mean, like, if you don't believe it, like, like the worst thing you want in terms of vision is nobody to respond in any way. You get pushback on your vision, it could be prophetic. It could be. In this case, it certainly was. So they actually want to kill him. Why? Because he's disrupted their lives because there's a prophetic witness that they can't even deny there's something true about what he's saying. Um, here comes the dreamer. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him. We'll see what will become of his dreams. Um, so Reuben negotiates, let's not just, let's not kill him. Uh, you know, let's just end up giving him away into slavery. So the negotiation works. Uh, they sell him to a, a caravan of Ishmaelites. And it, they pass by. They take Joseph to Egypt, verse 28. Um, they lie to the father. They, they, they show him the robe with blood. Jacob tears his garments, verse 34. All sons and daughters rose up to comfort Jacob, but he refused to be comforted, verse 35. And um, meanwhile, the Midianites are sold in Egypt to Potiphar, an office of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Okay, so what has just happened? An incredible vision is given. A vision that, because we know the end of the story is going to come true. What follows the vision? An utter desolation. An utter valley. Indeed, vision matures the vision matures by trials and poverties. So as I cast a vision for vision to you all, I cast it with excitement. I cast it with energy because I know that it's prophetic. I know that it's a seeing. I know that any follower of Jesus filled by the Holy Spirit can vision. I'm excited about that. But I would not be doing good Bible work if I didn't tell you that as a vision comes, it's a valley that follows. Over and over and over again, Moses lead my people out of Egypt. I mean, maybe not become too familiar with the fact that this man was asked to lead millions of people out of slavery in Egypt. Lead my people out of Egypt. Spend 40 years in Midian before you do so. Paul, be my apostle to the Gentiles. Spend 13 years in Arabia before you do so. Hey, you're in the game. Hey, you're benched. What? Hey, here's a vision. Hey, here's a valley before you go into the verity of the vision. Oswald Chambers, incredible, you know, early 20th century uh, thinker and preacher. Oswald Chambers says, when a vision matures, it goes to vision, to valley, to verity. We now have Joseph with no power. He's enslaved. His slavery will actually lead to him being manipulated by Potiphar's wife ultimately imprisoned there. So he has gone into the deepest of valleys, the deepest of deserts. So as you vision, 
and you can see that this, this can be scaled. This can be large scale, small scale. As you receive a vision, as you go into a new ministry, as you go into a new calling, do not be at all dismayed or shocked if a valley follows. Expect a valley. It's the biblical pattern for those who God is calling into ministry, take them in the valley. Why would God do that? Teresa of Avila. God, if this is how you treat your friends, it's no surprise you have so few of them. That's what Teresa of Avila said, 16th century. She planted monasteries all over Europe. It's an amazing, amazing woman, Teresa of Avila. If this is how you treat your friends, it's no surprise you have so few of them. So you give people visions, and they take them in the valleys? Really? Is that how this is going to roll? That's how this is going to roll. Why would that ever be the case? Catherine and I were so clearly called to resurrection in uh, 1998, 1999. And we had always known, I'd always known I was called to lead a church. That was a call that got put in my heart very early on. I was very excited about leading a church and had a great sense of a vision for resurrection and what she could become, a resource church, a mother church, a church planning church, and all this vision for resurrection. So we, we were called in 99. And then from 99 to 2002, we had three years that can only be described as the most miserable, the most painful, the most anxiety-ridden years of my life. And I'm a kid of divorce who had survived that previous. But this might have been worse, or at least commensurate to the misery of my parents' divorce. We had four splits in five years at resurrection. We had people that we loved and had, had broken bread with and been close to in our own home leave the church Leave the church saying things about us that we thought nobody would ever say. I was accused of being an arch misogynist. I was accused of violating my wife and my children. That verb was used. I was accused of being a danger to my family. I was accused of being somebody that was so beyond any kind of help or restitution that I should be removed immediately from the office of senior pastor by people of immense influence, not just like outliers who are cranky. People of immense influence are saying things about me. And then we didn't have a bishop. There was no one to defend me. There was no one to investigate if it was true or not. It was, it was the wild, 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 wild western suburbs. It was an utter valley. The follow of this great day where I was made the rector and I was installed and we were celebrating and this is what God is doing. And not but weeks after that, I went into that world. I was devastated. I was confused. I was like, what? how does this work? I don't understand. I've got vision. I've got excitement. I've got gifts. I love the Lord. Let's get this done. You know? Um, and instead, I went into a crushing valley. So it was in that valley, it was in those years, that my brother, who's three years younger, but also a pastor, he handed me a book. Jim Cimbala's Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, 1999. Dated now, but extremely important book for me 20 years ago. And I read this book about Brooklyn Tabernacle Church by this incredible pastor who said the only way to build a church is to fast and pray. I'm in such a valley right now. I'm so bereft of any compelling vision. We're not bearing any fruit. People just are leaving every week the church. What if we banked it all on fasting and prayer? So in the valley, what I was given, being stripped down, being broken, broken deeply, was this call to fast and pray. 
See, things happen in the valley after you're given the vision that will actually lead you to the verity of what God called you to do from the beginning. But you have to get into the valley. You have to realize your poverty of spirit. You have to really truly be humbled. Because as often as we say, I want to be humble, I want to be humble, isn't until God uses the external circumstances of our life to get to the internal reality of our pride that we can actually truly live in humility. You understand that God is always going to use the external circumstances of your life. You're going to be thinking, oh, my life would be so great if I didn't have this external circumstance. That is your life. <laughs> that is God working in your life. You're thinking, oh, I'd have such a great Christian life if I didn't have this painful reality in my relational life or in my financial life or in my sexual life. I got to have this great life. I didn't have these things all happening. If I could just get to that point in my life where I could get all these things, like put over here, put over here, put that down, ah, put that down. Okay, okay, for like five minutes, I've got a great life. Right? I got, I, got, I got a great life. Oh, no, there comes that sexual temptation. Ah, I almost had a great life. Oh, no, there comes that financial need. Ah, oh, there comes that family of origin issue again. Why do I have the mom that I have? Right? If only I had the mom that I'd have, I'd have a great life. That's the valley. Actually, that is God taking things that he did not design. He does not want us to have painful situations with our mothers, profound sexual temptation. That isn't how he designed life to be. That's part of the enemy, and that's part of our own sinful nature. But God actually takes the enemy's work and our own sinful nature's work in the valley, after we see the vision, to actually meet us with his power and his spirit. Right? So you go through a valley, and I kept thinking, man, if I just didn't have all the people who just like me so much, I'd have a great church. <laughs> I mean, people calling me a misogynist, I'd have a great church. But the fact of the matter was, God wanted to use those very things for me to go, I can't do this. I can't do this. I really can't do this. There's no way I can do this. There's no way I can lead a church. How does vision happen? What happened for Joseph? Well, you can be guaranteed that the arrogance he displayed, now he did see from God. He, he had a right dream from God. What should he have done with that? Well, we, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I think we can speculate, held it. <laughs> what does this mean, Lord? gone to his father of wisdom and authority and submitted himself to his dad's headship and said, Dad, what does this mean that I got these dreams? Given Joseph an opportunity, Jacob an opportunity to, to, to pastor him through it. And instead he just pops off, you know. Hey, this is what happened. Isn't this amazing? Look how amazing I am. You can be guaranteed slavery and then prison. That got refined profoundly. We know it got refined. We know it changed Joseph deeply and internally. Why? So that he could one day lead as Pharaoh's right hand. So he could one day actually provide protection for the people of Israel amidst profound famine. So when you're in the valley, all right, you have to remember the vision that was given you. And you have to trust that God will bring it to a verity, to a truth. Okay. One final thing on that. Um, this was amazing. So I read, when I was in the valley of these three years learning to lead resurrection, I read this book by Oswald Chambers, Vision Valley Verity. I was like, wow, that's really helpful. I'm just waiting for the verity. I'm just waiting for God to bring this moment. So um, it was 2005. So I started leading in 99. So this was six years. It wasn't all miserable. I mean, we started getting better. We started growing 
in a healthy way. We built a healthy staff team. So it wasn't like it was every day. It was horrible. But it wasn't until 2005 that I was sharing a vision with the church. It was called Building a Sanctuary Transformation. That was our vision, Building a Sanctuary Transformation. And I was sharing that vision on that Sunday with the church. We had, we had old school banners up, and we, had, we were like, this is like Building a Sanctuary Transformation Sunday, and we're all excited about it. And I'm excited. I'm like, wow, after six years, we finally cast vision and say where we're going. And I'm distributing Holy Communion. And someone brings forward a baby. And they say, you know, baby, you know, can you just pray a blessing on the baby? I said, sure. What's the baby's name? They're holding the baby. They said, the baby's name is Verity. Verity? Like the Lord's saying, Verity's here. She's a little baby. <laughs> but the truth of the vision is here, Stuart. You were given a vision. You went through a valley. Here's the Verity. So if you see that little picture of a little baby in my office, that's Verity. I always remember Verity, that God will bring us through to that, to that place. So vision's a whole lot more than a statement. You guys are getting that, I think. <laughs> vision's a discipleship journey, amen? Vision's a, vision's a leadership journey. Vision's a Jesus journey. It's a journey of, of who God's made us to be, the vision. It's a journey of the Holy Cross of Jesus Christ, which he himself had to walk through, the suffering, the stripping down, the being made naked, right? That's, that's what happens in the valley for what? The resurrection power of Jesus, the verity. The coming through on the other side is a changed person where God tests you. He tests your vision. He wants to know, are you really about me and a vision of me first and foremost so that the vision that I've given you will always be secondary? will always be important, but not the most important thing, because I'm the most important thing. That's what's getting tested in your valley, okay? That's what God's going to do. But then we see that vision does indeed happen. Uh, verses 41 to 36 under how does vision happen, that's not accurate. Uh, what we see is, vision, is chapter 45. The vision does happen. Um, so lots happen back and forth. Joseph now in immense power. His brothers are coming back to him. Um, and his brothers are presented before him. And it says in verse 45, chapter 45, verse 1, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried out, Everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. So his brothers were still there. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Okay. So the vision actually happens by the Spirit. I love this quote from Oswald Chambers. We cannot attain to a vision. That he means we can't earn a vision. We can't actually ultimately make a vision happen. We can catalyze a vision. We can start a vision. But we cannot make a vision happen. We must live in the inspiration of it until it accomplishes itself. Because if it's a vision from God, it will be God-generated. It will be God-accomplished. It will happen in the Lord. So when we think about vision happening, what we're really talking about is the theology of the Holy Spirit. We're really talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit indwells us, and the Holy Spirit indwells His work, and the Holy Spirit is actually moving and working to make things happen. So what you have in the early church is you get again and again, what you see is, yes, the acts of the apostles, but also, right, the act of the Holy Spirit. What happens in the early church is the Holy Spirit is moving in power to make His purposes in Jesus accomplished. So when you go into vision, you're going into prophecy, you're also going into life in the Holy Spirit. And you're saying that the Holy Spirit is going to make this happen as I'm faithful to the Holy Spirit. I'm faithful to the Word. I'm aligned in every way. I'm not grieving the Spirit. The Spirit of God will make it happen. Vision happens by the Holy Spirit. What's your job? The discipline of poverty. The discipline of the valley. Now, 
This vision of life verity, that can happen kind of like chunk, chunk, chunk. That's kind of how I told you about it with my journey, right? Kind of this season was vision, this season was valley, this season was verity. And it can happen that way for sure. But let's be really clear. In the spiritual life, it can happen at a micro scale too. So it could be, again, that you've got not a valley of five years like I had. It's a valley of you know, a week even or two weeks. Or, I mean, in other words, this happens in scales in lots of different ways. That God's doing something in my life. God's calling me into something. Oh, my goodness. Now I'm in a deep struggle. Now I'm actually in a suffering that I hadn't anticipated. Now I come through this to the truth of who God is. So vision valley verity is true for making vision. It's just true of your Christian life. It's all intertwined. Does that make sense? If you have any questions about that, I'm glad to answer that. I want to make sure that that's clear. And it can kind of intertwine, right? So you may even have one part of your life where God's doing a vision season, maybe in your personal life, but in your ministry life, it's a valley season. These things can often coincide. They can often, often be different. He works these things in different ways. There is definitely a poetry to vision valley verity. It is not simply a mechanistic reality, although it can play out sequentially as well. We'll do questions around that. Okay, let me, t- let me start with this. How does vision happen? And then we'll do some Q&A. How does vision happen? Okay, first of all, vision takes time. All right? So there's three steps in how vision happens. It's time, it's talking, and it's, it's team. But vision takes time. So first of all, what that means is when you're called into a new ministry, you're called into a new season of your life, you're called into a new chapter, you're called to lead something in some way, including yourself, you need time. You need time in the Lord. You need time for prayer. You need time for quiet. Right? You need time where you can actually let everyone know, I'm not on my phone for the next seven hours. I need time away from my brain being engaged with technology. I need time away from that. If possible, you need time in nature. You need to be in God's created order. Right? Nature isn't just kind of a, a wonderful ancillary reality. Nature is extremely important to your Christian life. Extremely important. So you need to get into some element of nature, whatever that might be. Get by the lake. Get out to a forest preserve. You need that. You need time in nature. You need time away from technology. You need time away from others. You need time where you're quiet. You need time with the Word. You need time. You might need a succession of time frame things. You know, it, it all depends on kind of what you're discerning, what you're hearing. But one of the most important things to do when you're going into a new ministry, a new season of life, a new move, whatever it is, is time, time, time. Time before you make that decision, time while you're in the middle of it, time as you've made it. And that's extremely, extremely important to you as leaders. So a big part of how you lead well is you, before the Lord, work on your time. I did a bunch of stuff on Gregory House with this, right? We talked about how you frame up your weeks and your months and your, your, your right? The Sabbath time and prayer time. All right. So vision happens through time because that's where you hear from the Lord. That's where you receive something. That's then where you, you, you let it gestate. You let it just, you hold it. Joseph didn't hold it. You hold it. Okay, Lord, I think this is what I heard. I'm going to wait on it. I'm going to give it time. I'm going to let it simmer. Um, what's God saying? Then as you take time, then you need to talk. You need to talk it through. Okay, so first of all, you need to talk it through with people that you really trust. Father Aaron was so wise. Um, he called me and said, hey, Stuart, this is what I heard. Does it resonate with you? I'm getting tears in my eyes in the Starbucks parking lot listening to talk about raising up the Son of God. Uh, that he may be, you know, all may be drawn to him in North Side of Chicago. I'm like, yes, that, wow, Aaron, that resonates with me. It's like, oh, so he got strength from that. It's like, oh, wow, Stuart resonates with that too. Um, so you need to talk about it with the right people. Um, 
and, and you need to talk it through. You need to talk about it out loud. It also helps not just to get their feedback. It helps to say it, all right? So speaking things with your mouth, that's very important spiritually. You speak it with your mouth. You're like You say it. You hear yourself saying it. How does that sound? Does that make sense? So part of what you're doing when you're talking about it now is you're coming up with a phrase. So when you're talking about it, you're phrasing this idea out. So you're taking this spiritual intuition or this Bible verse that you have, whatever it is, and you're actually now kind of taking it from... So if we go inductively, right? Inductive is starting big and getting small. The inductive vision is very much an inductive process. Time with the Lord, time in the Word. We're moving down now. I've got this particular calling. I've got this small group I'm going to be leading for the next six months. Lord, what's the vision for this small group? What do you want to accomplish in this small group? Where am I taking this small group? You're moving it toward here. So that eventually you want to get to the point, which is a phrase. That phrase is as much for you as for anyone else. You need that phrase that will guide and lead you. You can talk that phrase. You can speak that phrase. Um, it's helpful, and this is in the development of a phrase, and we'll do some of this when we workshop it in Gregory House. You want that phrase to have maybe a little punch or a little, a little poetic to it, a little interest in it. Um, so you want to, so there's nothing wrong like with a vision uh, to know God and make him known. I mean, it, it, praise the Lord. It's deeply biblical. I would argue that that vision, though, lacks a little, little poetry. It, it lacks a little... Right? You want something, you want something in the phrase when people are like, what do you mean by that? Right? Now, you want, to be, you want to be clear, but plant a revival of the word and sacrament. Now, if that has any problem, it probably has too many questions in part of it. It's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. But you hear revival, and you go, now, okay, revival. As a believer, I know revival, and I either want that or I don't want that. So even what happens in that mission phrase is I use the word revival, and immediately people are going to go, they're drawn to it, not drawn to it. I want that. If you don't want revival, Bless you and go work somewhere else. There's, no, there's, truly, I, mean, I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I'm like, go work somewhere else because we're going to be all about revival here. So I'm going to speak this phrase. I'm going to talk it. Um, I'm going to say, plant a revival of the word and sacrament. Plant a revival of the word. That's awesome. Like, yeah, like Bible preaching and Bible teaching and Bible study and the word and revival. That makes sense. And sacrament? Okay, now again, you're going to be interested in that. You're going to be like, at least you're going to be like, what does that mean? So I actually want a phrase that's like, Planning a revival, of, a revival of word and sacrament infused by the Holy Spirit. Again, if that phrase has any problems, it, it, it raises too many questions. Um, and you kind of have to land somewhere with a phrase, right? So sometimes your phrase may ask too many questions. Sometimes your phrase may not you know, kind of provoke enough questions. Kind of the way I'm wired is I would rather raise more questions than less. That's just my leadership wiring. I know that about myself. Um, but I think that that's helpful. So I would encourage you, what's your phrase for your ministry life right now? What, what's your phrase? What do you have? Oh, what's your phrase for your congregation? What's your phrase for your small group? What's your phrase for your work right now? What's your phrase? I would really encourage you to have a phrase of some kind. Um, and you want a phrase that, that has some element of action, planting a revival. We're going we're gonna to plant with seeds, you know, a revival of the word and sacrament. Again, I think that's interesting. I, I like that phrase. Of course, I like it. I, I didn't make it up myself. It came out of a team time together. But planting a revival, I think that's really interesting. Bible word. Right? God gives to growth, but we plant. Um, it's something you can do. You plant a seed, but you can't make a seed grow. God has to do that. I, a lot of, I like it. I like it. I think it works. Right? But it's an action. What's uh, Rez's uh, current driving mission? Inviting everyone into a transforming relationship with Jesus and his church. Okay, so inviting. So you, actually, you often want to start with some kind of action that you're calling people to follow you into. I'm asking everyone to invite. I'm asking everyone to be a part of planting. And you want it to be a word or an action that other people can do. So even for a small group, it might be, um, let's make this up on the fly, uh, uh, discovering, discovering the intelligence of Jesus. 
That'd be an interesting vision for a Bible study. Did you ever think about Jesus being smart? Like, particularly like an investigative Bible study, discovering, discovering the intelligence of Jesus. That's what we're going to do together. We're going to discover the intelligence. So we're going to discover. So we're going to be in a mode together where we're finding something out that we didn't know before. It's a discovery. The intelligence of Jesus, that he's a very bright, engaging person. Discovering the love of Jesus. That's interesting too. Discovering the compassion of Jesus. Discovering the justice of Jesus. Oh, wow. Like, you see, you see what I'm saying? Like, whew, okay. Like, what do you mean by justice? Well, that's, that's interesting. I'm going to ask you a question about it. But I, mean, I, want, I want to discover. So when you're building a vision phrase, you want your first word or words to kind of have something to do with what you're asking people to do, where they're going to follow you into it, okay? And then you want to have some kind of interest that's deeply biblically rooted, like discovering the love of Jesus. All right, that's deeply biblically rooted. It's pretty much it. So you're talking these things. All right. So again, with a small group, I'll just keep you guys as an example. I think it's a helpful kind of skilled example. Then every time you're meeting as a small group, oh, this is so, and you're not like, now comes the vision time. Everyone, I'm not going to vision, right? You're like sneaking it in. You're like, you're finding every little opportunity to speak it because you want to prophesy over them. So you're like, oh, this is so great that we're gathered tonight. Okay, you guys know, like you've heard me say this a hundred times. You'll hear me do this a hundred times. Um, we're going to discover the love of Jesus again. This is awesome. So every time people are gathered, they're being prophesied over and they're also being directed. This is what we're all about. We're planning a revival of the word and sacrament. It's what we're doing as a diocese, you guys. That's where we're going. Um, so you're talking it. Okay. You guys got that. Um, and, and you're talking a phrase. So uh, Gregory House, one thing I want you guys to do is I want you to work on a phrase. And CCI, you may want to do this too. Father Nate will guide you. But work on a phrase. Choose something in your life. Choose a particular ministry. Choose just your life right now, your ministry life right now. Um, Choose your area of ministry if, if, you're, if you're a ministry resident and begin to work on a phrase. So get a little time. Again, we'll get an hour or two-hour walk or whatever. Give some time. Jesus, what is the vision you've given me right now for my life, for my ministry, for this initiative? What is it? Stir in me. And just listen. Just listen to the Lord. And you may not be sure it's the Lord or not. Just write stuff down. Don't worry. Don't, don't get all worked up about it. Is this exactly from the Holy Spirit? Just write it down. Begin to just experiment with it. Does it have some grip for you? Is it interesting for you? Um, you don't want it to be super long. So planting a revival of word and sacraments, that's, that's, that's pretty long. But it's, it, it still works. I can still say it. Um, so you want something that, that, that's generally, you know, several words, not 20 words. All right? Um, and you want, to be able to, you want to be able to want to say it. That makes sense, too. Like, it should, it should engage you enough that you want to say it. You're like, I, I get excited saying this. Um, now, this takes several drafts. So planning a revival of Word and Sacrament, that, that took two years. Building a sanctuary transformation, Res's vision um, 15 years ago, that took us a year to get to that. Inviting everyone to a transformed relationship with Jesus and his church, that took a year and a half. So um, you guys are going to have time to do that. So I'm just saying, let's play. Let's, let's, let's get in the laboratory, you know, the vision laboratory. Um, get your beakers out, and let's just start experimenting. So just get something. I just want you to get something that we can work with together. Okay. And then finally, vision happens through a team. So you've taken time with the Lord. You've talked it through with others. You find a way to talk the vision itself. You're phrasing it. And then it happens with a team. So then it happens through a team. So one problem is that people sometimes are called visionaries in Christian circles, and that's code for they do it by themselves, they do it out in front of everyone else, they don't involve anyone else, and they get a pass to be that kind of person because they're a visionary. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> so, right, this vision has to happen through a team of people, whether it's your small group partner, whether it's your small group itself, 
whether it's your leadership team. They actually have to buy into this. They have to love this, which also has to leave space for them to be a part of it. So part of the process of visioning, particularly if you're not doing it just for your own life, is this is what I think I'm hearing. This is what I think I'm stirred by. What do you think? And so you're then engaging in a process with people in your team to help them go, I like that, or I don't resonate with that word. So I had really significant, it was really creative pushback over the word revival when we were starting the diocese. I just had a couple of great leaders that didn't like the word revival. They're like, I don't like the word revival. Like, great. I wasn't like, whoa, you're a problem. You will never be in a meeting again. You didn't like what I said. I'm like, come forward, come forward, come forward. Why do you like the word revival? Here's why I don't like it. I listened to them. Uh, it speaks of events that to me seem surfacy and uh, not discipleship oriented. Okay. It speaks to me of kind of neo-evangelicalism, uh, Billy Graham era, no offense to Dr. Graham, but I'm not interested in that. Or whatever, whatever. So I did lots of listening as part of the team process. I learned a lot. So when I would communicate, I was like, well, I'm still going to hold the word revival after all of that. I went through a little valley on it, right? I went through a valley on it because people didn't like it. Um, but I'm going to hold it, but now I know how to explain it. Now I know what the concerns are. And some of those concerns were really good. So as you go through a team process, you're gonna, your phrase is going to get pushed around and, and chastened and, right, kind of like a fire. It's going to get refined. But there also what happens in that process is people start to own it. So one of my guys that did not like the word revival, when we came out at the end of the word, at the end of the process and said, we're going to do planning revival, word, he was like, okay, I'm, I'm in. I was totally heard. I got to contribute. I can hear some of my talking points and your talking points when you're, when you're casting the vision, Bishop. I'm, I'm good. He's a generous guy, healthy guy. He's like, sure. Um, I, you know, the process won him over. So your team owns this. So here's what happened then, and, and then we'll just with, with some Q&A. As your team owns this, here's what happens about vision. This is, this, is, this is the brilliant thing about vision, is it's not about you as the leader. It's about the vision. It's not about you as the leader. It's about the vision. So the organization, because you know, every leader says, I don't want it to be about me. I don't want it to be about me, which, of course, is half lie. All of us around our nature want it to be about us in some capacity or another. But the way you actually live that out is you go, no, it's about a vision. So we actually, when people have a vision that they're following, they actually are freer, right, from having to simply follow you. Actually, you're following the vision as well. So if you're into being a senior pastor and you're going into a budget meeting and there's some things you'd like to do with the budget, you're saying, well, the reason we should do this with the budget is that our vision asks for this in the budget. It's not just Stuart asking for this line item in his budget. Well, now we have a battle between Stuart and his board members. No, it's Stuart saying, this is in the vision. The board member says, show me this in the vision. How is this part of the vision? Great question to ask. It's my job as the leader to make sure that everything's lined up with the vision. It's my job to make the case for the vision. It's my job, and I want to initiate. I'm going to do something new to make sure that my initiation is just Stuart's idea. It's actually in line with the vision. That's what a leader does. And so when you lead with the vision, it actually forces you to always say, is everything aligned with the vision? Is our money aligned with the vision? Are our leaders aligned with the vision? Is our facility aligned with the vision? I mean, we had no business coming into this space and spending the kind of money we had to spend, which wasn't much compared to other buildings, but amidst the realities of spending a lot of money, amidst great poverty and incredible needs throughout the world and in our own country, our own city. How could we, how could we do that? But we knew that the vision asked us to do it. As a matter of fact, the vision was building a sanctuary transformation. We've been in a high school for 20 years. We came into this space. People are like, this is aligned with our vision. We had this vision before we even knew about this building. People are like, let's do it. So vision leading takes the pressure off the, 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 the top leader in some ways and creates accountability for the top leader to call everyone into one thing at one time. 
Vision is one of your most unifying partners that you can have. It will create more unity. One reason why you have so much division in so many churches is that there isn't a God-given vision. And it isn't owned. And it isn't spoken. And it isn't team together, you know, collaborated on. And it isn't out in front all the time. So often what happens in a church is that the pastor becomes the vision. Often by default, by the way. They, they didn't set themselves up that way like, oh, I'm going to be the vision. Because they don't have a clear vision and they haven't been owning of a vision and the vision isn't prophetic, it becomes about the pastor. And it becomes, oh, do I trust him or not? Do I like him or not? Do I want to go this way or not? Right? And then what do you get? People saying yes, people saying no. And they split. But you have a vision in the beginning. You cast a vision to people that are visiting your fellowship. They're visiting your small group. They're visiting your church. And you let them know from the very beginning, this is who we are. This is what we're about. Then they decide from the very beginning if they want that or not. And you stay consistent to that vision, they'll stay with you. Unless maybe at some point they're called to a different vision. Then they're called to a different vision. They say, God bless you. It actually keeps them from becoming personal about the pastor or the leader. I know you guys can appreciate this, but in 10 more years, you're going to really appreciate this because you're going to realize, ha, ah, it's so personal. Ministry is so personal. Whether one of the ways you can actually, in a healthy way, not make it so personal, lead with a vision. Let the vision lead the, the, the organization because what's really happening? God's leading. This is the way that you incarnationally let God lead your work because how did I start this teaching? It's a vision of God. It's a vision of the Lord that then gets manifested in a certain phrase, which becomes a pragmatic and application of following the Lord. So I know that for us in the diocese to follow the Lord, we have to plant a revival of the word and sacrament. That's what it means for us to follow the Lord. God's given me a concrete phrase. If I just keep saying, let's just follow the Lord, you guys would be like, okay, sure. I mean, yeah, we're Christians. Let's follow the Lord. What does that mean? I guess it means whatever Stuart's doing right now. (laughs) Danger, danger, danger. But you guys have to hold me accountable. Am I leading us in planning a revival of the Word and talking to the Holy Spirit? Is it true with our 5S values? Is it consistent with a vision of moving forward in these different you know, realities? You know, you, then, then, then it's just a lot more clarity. So um, let me stop there. Let's, just, let's do some Q&A um, and just any thoughts you guys have or questions you guys have or points you want to make. All of that would be super helpful. I'll repeat the questions um, because we've we got our Minnesota folks also a part of this uh, audio and podcast. So, all right. What do you think? Ideas, thoughts, questions, conundrums? Also, Gregor House people, if you're kind of like, okay, what, what am I working on for our workshop? Um, feel free to ask me that too. I'm glad to clarify that. Great, Will. Thanks for this teaching, Bishop. Um, I had a question about uh, when you talked about the difference between apostles being those who see something uh, that isn't yet and prophets being uh, those who see something that isn't right, yeah. usually doctrinally and biblically, yeah. and yet vision is still prophetic. Yeah. Um, would you be willing to parse out a little bit of like the place that... Uh, vision falls in the prophetic ministry? Do you have prophets who aren't um, apostles? Sort of the overlap and the distinction of those two. Totally, totally. So Will's asking, um, what, what's kind of the overlap and the distinction between how vision might operate in an apostolic 
somebody has a lead apostolic ministry gift as opposed to somebody has a lead prophetic gift. And we'll definitely get into this even more with the fivefold ministries and when I, when I teach on what, um, on, on, the, on the whole ministry. So we'll, we'll definitely get into this. We call them the five M's, the five ministries. Um, they're kind of partnered to the five S's. So let me say a little bit about that. So I think that what happens for the apostolic gift, and then I'll say what happens the prophetic gift, is part of the apostolic gift, and if you're around somebody who has that apostolic gifting that the Lord's given them, is, again, they see what isn't yet. So they have an intuition or they have an idea of what doesn't exist yet but could exist. And the apostolic gift then is always kind of agitated. It's, it's always a little, and this has to be actually part of a, of a discipleship work for an apostolic gifted person. It's always kind of discontent. They're like, it's not there yet. This hasn't happened yet. And so vision is what God gives to help fill in that gap between what is and what is not yet. Vision helps fill in that gap for the apostolic leader. For a prophetic leader, and again, I'm, there's subtleties here. Uh, I realize nuances. But for a prophetic leader, often the way that their vision gift will operate is this, what's happening now isn't what God's word promises. What's happening now isn't what God, God's word calls for. So a prophetically gifted person is often dealing with the now, right? So an apostolic person is often dealing with what's coming, more futuristic. Prophetic is like, this isn't right right now. So, I mean, obviously, like, our prophetically gifted people have just been going, like, their radars are just, like, just going crazy over the last six months, right? Because the, the fact of racial division, the fact of systemic racism is right before us in our country. And prophetic people are just, like, it's like, this isn't what the Bible calls for. This isn't the Bible's vision of life together um, and who we are as people, right? So that prophetic gift goes, this isn't how it is biblically. Um, and I have a vision biblically of what could be. Right? So there's, there's that sense of, so again, a, prophetically, a prophetic person will be agitated because what's happening now isn't what the scriptures call for and discontent. Um, and they need vision to come and say, here's the biblical picture. Now, a gracious, what a prophetic person learns as, as they mature is a graciousness, not just to say, this isn't right, which is part of the prophetic gift, but it's also saying, this is what the scriptures teach. And actually leading with a beautiful picture of, this is what the scriptures teach. A beautiful picture of what God wants. This is the beautiful picture of justice. Isn't that compelling? Um, that doesn't mean that a prophetic person has to say this isn't what is happening. That's part of the prophetic gifting. But the lead is this, is, this is what the Bible teaches. This is the vision of what can be in the Lord scripturally. Um, so I think that there's almost kind of a, there's a very much of a scriptural basis in the prophetic with vision, while with apostolic, of course it's biblically based, but you're, you're not just necessarily applying scripture, you're just applying scriptural realities for what could be in your generation. So it's more of an imaginative work based out of scripture as opposed to a prophetic work which is based in scripture and teaching scripture into the situation. But with the evangelist, with the way that they see, is the evangelist, what they're seeing is a vision of how many more people could come to the Lord. An evangelist just has a seeing more people can know the Lord. And I can see it. And I have a vision for it. The pastor, while we're on this, we're, I'm, a, I'm a J on the marriage. I gotta finish this up or I'll be nervous all day. Okay, so a pastor, a shepherd, right? What they see is what can be built for the people of God, right? So their vision is often motivated by what can be built for the people of God. A community that can be built, a small group that can be built. That's how a pastor works. Like my, my, my wife has incredible pastoring gifts. So Kevin's always thinking, what could be built? Like, what kind of community could exist for the people of God? And she's always just wanting that vision for that, right? And then, um, finally, a teacher. 
right? A teacher is also a builder. Teachers and pastors are builders. But the teacher says, what ideas can be built? I have a vision of how you build ideas, pedagogical method. I have ideas of what ideas should be built, the content of a teaching. So a teacher sees, a teacher has vision for a series or a Bible study theme um, or like what's lacking right now in the life of the church, right? So a teacher's like, how do I build these ideas? How do I build a possibility? I have a vision for building that. So that's kind of getting into the five M's, but it's kind of fun. And I think vision has a, a, a very strong connection, Will, and it gets kind of applied in different ways as per the five M's. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Tom. You were talking about, like, the scalability of visions, you know, and how it can apply to your personal life or to thousands or whatever. And so I'm just curious, like, how many vision phrases are you abiding under in your life right now? And how do those work together? And That's silly. have you, like, have you encountered roadblocks of, like, these feel like they're, you know, uh, I don't know, these feel in contrast or, like, whatever. Yeah, what's that process been yeah. like? That's not silly at all, Tom. So okay, the question is, like, how many vision phrases, like, even in my, in my kind of operating under, how many vision phrases I'll extrapolate yeah. could one operate under? Yeah. And how does that work? So that, that raises two really important points. The first is, I should have clarified this in my notes. Um, when I talk about mission and vision, and everyone has different ways they handle mission and vision as defined. When I talk about a mission, I'm talking about a phrase that can go through this whole process here. But a mission phrase is sort of what is the why of an organization specifically long-term? So our mission as a diocese is our long-term call to plant a revival. Our vision is going to change by the season. So your mission is very long-standing. It has a, a continuity. Res has always had the mission of bringing others into the transferring presence of Jesus. We just, we just updated that mission by saying inviting everyone to a transformed relationship with Jesus and his church. I mean, so we actually didn't change our mission from the 80s. All right, so that's mission. Vision, though, does change. So in my kind of pr proposed construct, vision is what's God doing now, now what's God doing. So that's going to change. In a church's life, I think vision changes from every 5 to 10, maybe in 15 years. But generally, you're going to need a vision change up in a church. Um, so right now, Reza's vision um, is... Uh, is, 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 is local and, uh, I get it right now. Um, help me out here. Yeah, localizing and personalizing mission. So Reza's vision is localizing and personalizing, Reza's vision is localizing and personalizing mission. That's why it gets confusing because there's mission in the word. Um, it's, it's great. So that's what really the leadership's saying. Right now we want to localize, we want to personalize our life of mission. That's, that's the vision that's driving us now. Um, so that will change probably in five, seven years. That'll change. And people need to understand, so those things change. So you can only operate, you know, really under a couple of different visions. And regarding the organizational reality of vision, you shouldn't have two at the same time. So now you may have a couple of different things you're leading. So for me, actually, part of the challenge when I was being both rector of resurrection and bishop was actually trying to lead two visions, two missions. That's actually one of the hardest things I tried to do. It wasn't just even the details of trying to, you know, get tasks done for both organizations. It was actually having the space in my head, the space in my soul, and my prayer life to be able to lead two different missions, two different visions. Um, so even as I've now we can moved into even greater emphasis on my, my bishop work, we now have a dean of the cathedral. You know, Dean Steve now has particular calling to lead the vision of resurrection. 
personalizing localizing mission. So I would say in my own life now, my main you know, vision is be a movement of worship, multiplication, evangelism, and multi-ethnic family. What my main mission is revival, word, and sacrament. Um, but for a while, I, I carried basically four. And uh, that was challenging. That was really hard. Um, and then Catherine, just really clear, we, our, our, our vision for our children is that our children may be those who grow up to love God and love neighbor. Um, and that may not seem to have the same poetic interest or poetic punch, but when we were developing that vision 24 years ago, um, actually, there was so much emphasis on the behavior of children that for us to say, actually, we want kids that first and foremost love God and love neighbor, that was actually kind of a, that actually had interest and was kind of prophetic because it was more about we want kids that act like, you know, little Christians from the very beginning. Now, we want our kids to have good behavior, but we actually realized, no, to get up to good behavior, we want to have kids that can bond. We want to have kids that can love. So, so we have that kind of going as a family all the time, and then I've got really the diocesan one. At most, I had two, maybe three, including the personal one. But that was maxed. So ideally, you know, you're operating in, again, like, and that's why the part goes back to your calling as well. What are you guys primarily doing in your ministry assignments? You know, so you're part of CCI. That's got a vision that you're ascribing to and that you're under, which is awesome. Um, but actually, Father Nate has to own that more than anyone else, right? So you're serving that vision, supporting it, but then you have a sub-vision, if you will, under the work of CCI that you need to be really clear about that you're owning, whether it's your own personal vision or your ministry vision. So I think you kind of got to be clear, what's the one I'm owning the most that I'm most responsible for? And then what's the one that I'm supporting, I'm encouraging, I'm submitted to? That, that, yeah, that's, that's a very helpful question. Not silly. Other thoughts or comments? Yeah, Addie. What are some practical or tangible things that we can do to wait well while we're in the valley season and maybe our eyes are you know, fixed on the verity and just want to see that vision come to pass? Um, how can we wait well in that season? Yeah, so how, Addie, if I hear you acting, asking, how do we lead well and live well, perhaps as well, in that season of valley? Um, so that's an excellent question. I think much of the Christian life lived in the valley. So that's an excellent question. In other words, I think we have wonderful times where God gives us a vision and a calling, and we, we rejoice in those times, and we get those verity seasons um, where it's just like, this is amazing. We're in a verity season. I would say after 30 years of seriously following Jesus, much of the time is in a valley. And again, I think that's the reality of our sin nature, the reality of the devil and the cosmos, um, but also the reality that God has used all those things so that we can live the Beatitudes, we can live poverty of spirit. So much of our life is spent there. So I think the way that we live that life well is that first of all, we understand it. We can't be offended by the valley. Uh, Catherine often teaches beautifully, this is her teaching point, not mine, but don't, don't let God offend you. Don't be offended by God. I think we're often offended by God. And we're offended. We're offended. I mean, we talk about being scandalized by the cross, but actually we're offended by the valley, which is the cross in our lives. That offends us. We actually, if we're honest with, our, with, our, with our, what happens in our deepest souls, we often say, how dare you? How could you? How would you allow X, Y, Z? Um, so I would say, first of all, I have to just accept the fact that um, he has made the way of life to be the way of the cross to quote the prayer book. He's made the way of life to be the way of the cross. Okay. Um, and everyone's actually in, generally, some kind of valley in their lives as we wait to see Jesus face to face. And you want to find people, second, 
who actually are also identifying that life has a lot of valley. Life's a lot of cross. Life's a lot of pain. Life's a lot of suffering. You need people who also know that. You need other fellow believers who also know that. That doesn't mean you don't love somebody who doesn't necessarily live in that reality. You love them like, like crazy. But you got to have other folks who are like, yeah, it's cruciform. Yeah, he's made the way of life to be the way of the cross. Yes, this is true. This doesn't deny our resurrections or the resurrection. It doesn't deny the joy of the Lord is our strength. It doesn't deny jumping up and down in a celebration like I was doing last Wednesday night. <laughs> we do all those things, right? Um, but it also keeps real that this is part of our, our life on this earth. So you got to have people that could do it. And then, um, and this is just random, Eddie's probably like a, a better person could give you a book on this, and I'm sure that there are books on this. Um, probably Bonhoeffer's Cost of Discipleship is a book on this. Um, I would say you do have to keep worshiping. You've got to be in places of worship when you're in a valley. Um, it is so important that you are, you know, kneeling in worship, or if you're, you raise your hands in worship, or, or you're just open in worship, you've got to keep worshiping the people of God when you're in a valley. Uh, because what worship does is it says there's vision and there's also verity. What worship does is it pulls us out of our pain, right? It, it ministers the triumph of the cross as well as the sorrow of the cross. And musical, liturgical worship pulls us into that place. Um, and so I would say when you're in a valley, you've got to identify it. You've got to have people that will travel that valley with you that actually know the reality of it. But you've got to have the reality of worship. Um, many other things to be said, but that's at least a starter. It's a great question. Yeah, Matthew. Yeah, maybe you already sort of answered this by saying that in the valley, valley you need to be in a place of worship. But I, I'm kind of wondering, um, when you're in a valley, sometimes it's hard to believe that you're ever not going to be in that valley. <laughs> and so how do you know, how can you trust that Verity will come? How do you know it's not just the way things are just going to be? Yeah. How do you know it's not like, a discipline with kind of no end in sight. And I've just, I feel like there are people I've kind of counseled and talked to in life who they're in a really dark time and I try to present it to them as a time, as in yeah. it'll end. But they're like, when? It's been two years. And right. it's like, boy, I, I, and personally I'm like, boy, I sure hope like it really will, Verity yes. will really come. Yes, um, yes. So Matthew's question is, is um, uh, how do we encourage, and how do we, I think also you're asking, like, how do we theologically understand that some valleys are very long, seemingly interminable? And when, you know, how do we kind of think toward that verity time? So uh, that's a great question. It requires even more nuance than what I taught today. So one thing I would say is, um, as we learn to admit and own our valley, and I would include in that our poverties, right, the things that are our weakest, our sinful, besetting sins, our humiliations, right? As we own our poverty, we must also be very clear that even in the valley, um, we must also know, identify, and own our resurrections. That is to say, the power of God in our lives. And, um, and I think part of what it means when Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you, is far more than a lovely sentiment, but actually, I will never leave you without some power, of the resurrection. I will never leave you without some grace and gift of God amidst even a valley. So I think the one thing we need to do to help folks say is, okay, we have faith that this valley will end. I mean, for some in the journey that I've seen, it might be seeing our Lord face to face, particularly if there's, if we're talking about like a long-term health valley, like a long-term sickness. And it's sometimes that people are not released from that sickness until they die. 
So there may be, I mean, we're, we're getting into pretty serious stuff here. It may be that, you know, the end of that valley is seeing our Lord face of being released from that chronic health reality. That is possible. That chronic besetting sin, that is possible. Um, but I will say from testimony and scripture, I do believe that even in that, even in that valley, there are verity way stations. There are, there are, there are verity rest areas, um, whether that's the Eucharist, whether that's the assembly of God's people, whether that's, you know, time in the word, there are those very ways. And we probably need to also understand, this goes back to Addie's question as well, Matthew, um, that God will meet us with verities. He will meet us with truths even as we wait for perhaps that seasonal verity to come. Um, but there are some who have long seasons, long seasons of suffering. And it kind of facile, don't worry, it'll get better, which is not what you're saying. But of course, that doesn't really, that's not really biblical at one level. At the same time, I do think that, um, that the Lord that often has mercy on the seasons. And I have seen, again, cycles. I've primarily seen this cycle biblically. I've seen this cycle in people's lives where a verity season does come. I think that's primarily how it happens. But many of us have to learn how to find the verity amidst the profound valley. Yeah. All right, it's 1230. Um, CCI, thanks for coming out from Chicago. Really love having you guys out here. Um, fun to see you all again. And um, we're working on when I can come into the city. Didn't work for October, unfortunately. But I'll, I'm going to come in and visit you guys and hang out um, with, with, with you all there. Um, let me pray for us. So, Father, we just thank you for vision. We thank you for the partnership of vision that you give to those who are called to lead. That you, you show us where you want us to go. And you show us how to lead others that are following us. We thank you, Lord, um, that vision is prophetic and that we can actually speak the things of God to others. And I pray you'll help everyone here. I pray that everyone here, whether it's emotionally felt, would have some kind of time with you, encounter with you, where they just get clear about a vision phrase, just a vision gift that's guiding and leading them right now a vision for a certain ministry, a vision that, that, that's helping lead them and clarify for them and helping them lead others. And I pray that you'll help us to workshop that and help us to define that and design that and to strengthen that. And I ask all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.